Amen. Well, you guys may be seated. And as you sit, if you would, please join me in prayer. Father, we need you. Because of your son, we trust you. Because if you be grace in him, we come. We ask that you would arrest our attention, capture our hearts, give us a clearer picture of Jesus, that we may trust and love and worship you more. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray and for your glory. Amen. This morning, I want you uh, to engage your imagination with me. I want you to imagine that you are alone out in the desert. Nothing above but the scorching hot sun. Nothing around for as far as the eye can see but dry, hot sand. And so you're thirsty. But not just a little thirsty. You need a drink. You feel it. You're aching inside and out for water. Your skin feels like leather. Your lips are chapped and dry and cracking. The situation has gone from dangerous to desperate, and you are literally in the process of dying of thirst. You're about to give up all hope and collapse under the heat and exhaustion and thirst when you think you hear a noise. You don't exactly know what it is, so you go in that direction of where the noise is, and it becomes louder. And as it grows louder, you recognize that it is the sound of water. Not the trickling of water, it's the sound of rushing water. And as you move closer and faster, you start to smell that sweet smell of refreshing water. And you finally come to the edge of this great chasm. Deep in the bottom is this river, a mighty river, and it's pure, it's crystal clear, it is beautiful, refreshing water. You try to look for a way in, but th there is no way except for you jumping in and going all into this mighty river. But you realize as you look at it that it's, 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 it's going so fast and it's so strong. It, it, how could it be that deep and moving that fast and that strong? You know that if you jumped in that you would most surely drown or break you in pieces and throw you over the falls. As you're sitting here saying... The thing that I am most desperate in need of and the thing that I long for most is if I go into it, it will kill me. And as you contemplate all of this, you hear a voice from behind you and it startles you. You turn around and you see this man whose eyes are as serious and severe as they are kind. And he asks you an unbelievable question. He says, are you thirsty? And you say, uh, uh, you gather yourself and say, I, I I would give anything for a drink. And he says, I can give you a drink. Your eyes widen. You say, please, sir, give me this drink. Whatever it takes, I'll give it to you. Please give me a drink. And he says, no need to pay for it. Just come with me down into the river. And you go, wait, what? No, 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 no. Are you crazy? If you go in there, we'll both die. He gives a little chuckle and says, no, we won't. And as you get ready to ask why or how this could be, he answers your questions and he says, you see, I, I'm from the river. 
You say, you, you came from the river already? He says, yeah, yeah, I, but I'm, I'm from the river. That is, I am water. I'm also a man, of course. I'm human, just like you are, but actually more than you are. Because I, I was sent by the river to come and rescue people dying of thirst. But then the river called to me. And it told me to jump in. And so I did. And you say incredulously, you jumped into the river and survived. He says, no, I didn't survive. It killed me. But then it gave me life, new life, a higher life, a life such that now I can take you into the river. I will hold on to you. And if you hold on to me, I'll take you down in the river and it will not harm you. It will refresh you. It will give you life. At this, he just simply says, do you trust me? At this point, you can either decide, no, you trust yourself, and you can jump into the river, knowing that that will only lead to your demise. Or you can consider this man a crazy fool and walk away saying, I'll find another river somewhere else. Or I'll find another way into the river, deep down inside, knowing that there is no other river and there is no other way in. Well, the third option is you can embrace him and let him take you down into the river. What would you do? Beloved, this world is a desert. We all know it. And there is only one river, and that is God. But the problem is he's too mighty, he's too massive, he is too holy, that if we were to draw near to him, to even get close, we would be utterly destroyed. And so what we need what you need is someone who has gone before you, who has the power of life in himself, who is himself not only human but also water. He is also God who can take you into the river. Well, you will be not consumed but blessed. You need a high priest. That's what the high priest does. Look with me at Hebrews chapter 5, verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of God, behalf of men, in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. This is what the high priest does. He takes sinful men and he relates them. He draws them near, connects them to God by offering gifts and sacrifices for their sins so that God will not destroy them, but he will instead bless them, forgive them, and give them life. The people to whom the writer of Hebrews is writing, they know this all too well. They are familiar with the Levitical priesthood. They came out of Judaism to profess Christ as Savior and Lord, as the Messiah. But here they're being tempted. They're being tempted to go back to Judaism because they have priests that we can touch and talk to. We can give our sacrifices. I can buy an animal when I sin, take it to the priest. He can sacrifice it for me, and I am better and made all right with God again. And the high priest, though he is the highest, and he can directly relate to God on my behalf. And the writer of Hebrews is telling them, don't do that. That way is not open to you anymore. That, there, that, that is not, there is no life there. It won't work. It's been shut down. He's writing to paint a picture of Christ as he is, both in his likeness to and in his uniqueness from all other high priests, so as to compel his readers, indeed this morning, to compel you 
to hold fast by faith in your superior Savior, in the superior high priest. He is superior, but not in the sense that he is just a better alternative. Like you have priest, and you have the high priest, and then you have Jesus, the great high priest. That's not what it is. It's not just a hierarchy here. Jesus is superior in the sense that he renders all of them completely useless. There is no other high priest. Jesus is the superior high priest in the sense that he is the only high priest and whom we can draw near to God. And if you were to go down with Jesus to the river, as you get closer, the sound of the roaring waters becomes almost deafening. Your heart becomes, begins to beat all the harder as you see the water and you say it's flowing faster and it's stronger and it's wider and deeper than I ever thought possible. And in your terror, you're tempted to reach out to hold on to a branch as you're also holding on to Jesus. And he says, don't do that. These trees are, are, are rooted in the sand. As soon as you grab that branch, it will crumble in your hand. Besides that, you cannot hold on to me and the branch at the same time. It's all or nothing. That's what this passage of Hebrews 5, 1 through 10 is about. And it's divided up into two sections, verses 1 through 4, telling us the, the office, the role, and the God-given task of the high priest. And then verses 5 through 10, showing us why Jesus is the one who was appointed as this great and final high priest. Look with me at Hebrews 5, verse 1. It begins with the word for, which connects us back to what came before it. In particular, verse 16, which we learned last week from Pastor Nathan, he says here in Hebrews 4, 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. That's what we are being told to do. Draw near to God. Draw near to this holy, massive God. Do so with confidence. In order for us to draw near to God with confidence, we either have to be completely insane and delusional, or we must have a reason for that confidence. In order to draw near to God in Christ with great confidence, we must have great confidence in Christ. We must firmly believe that Jesus is the superior high priest, the only one in whom and the only one we need to draw near to God. He's that superior. And the evidence for the superiority of Christ is found in both comparison, how he is like every other high priest that came before him, and in contrast, how he is unlike and superior to every other high priest that came before him. And the purpose and the author of Hebrews telling us of the superiority of Christ in the comparison and contrast here is to strengthen our confidence in Christ that we would embrace him fully, firmly, always, and alone. And this fits with the overarching argument of this passage, and that is that God the Father is the one who has appointed Jesus as the high priest. Look at verse 4 with me. Hebrews 5, 4, it says, And no one takes this honor for himself. That is, no one becomes the high priest just because he says so, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. God has to approve of the mediator between God and man. God has to approve of the high priest. He has to, has to be the one that he has appointed. If me and you are at odds, and you say, hey, I need somebody to go with me to help me, and you grab an, an enemy of mine to come help you, that's not going to help. Like, I, I have to approve of this person. We have to have a mutual friend, somebody who's a go-between. That's what the high priest does. So he has to be approved and appointed by God. So we read in verse 5. 
So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him. That is by God, as verse 10 says. He was designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. This should give us confidence, should give us confidence in Jesus as we draw near to God in Christ because Jesus did not appoint himself, but God says, this is the one. There is one mediator between God and man, and it is the man Christ Jesus, Paul says. God appointed him. He says, you cannot come to me unless you have the high priest, and the high priest has to be the one that I have approved of, I have chosen, I have appointed, and it's Jesus. This is why we should be confident in Jesus but we're not always so confident. We know that because we often lack faith in our prayers. Even when though we say, in Jesus' name, amen. We don't pray with enough faith. Quite often, we also lack passion in our pursuit of God. We lack peace in our circumstances. We lack boldness in our evangelism and in our faith-filled obedience. And many more things that we lack. Often we could say, well, it's because it, it seems like there's the, the fierceness of the river would just overwhelm us. Or the weakness of us getting close to the river would be too much. But really, that's not the issue. The issue is we lack confidence in the high priest. We would be all the more eager to draw near to him in part if we had a greater confidence in him. And I think this lack of confidence in Christ as the superior high priest, the only one in whom we can draw near to God, this, this lack of confidence in part comes from the fact that there are some built-in challenges. You might say built-in hindrances to embracing Christ. That is, in the gospel itself, there are some things that seem quite counterintuitive to sinners in a fallen world. And so what I want to do is I want to strengthen your confidence in Christ by the power of the Spirit through His Word so that you see Him and embrace Him and worship Him and hope in Him as this superior high priest, this only one in whom we can draw near to God. And first, I want to do this by way of comparison, showing you how Jesus is like every other high priest, and in so doing, answering the question, why does it make sense that Jesus is the superior high priest that God appointed Him? The first point of comparison is the humanity of Jesus. He is a human. Just like every other high priest was human. We see again in verse 1, For every high priest chosen from among men, from among humans, he's appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Now, if you're to act on behalf of men, on behalf of humans, in relation to God, this way you must yourself be a human. Indeed, Jesus is, we see in verse 7. And then in the days of his flesh, that is, in his humanity while he dwelt on this earth, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Jesus, in the book of Hebrews, was almost uh, always the title given to him when speaking more directly about his humanity. And here he offered up prayers and supplications. He prayed to God because he was indeed a human. And he did so with loud cries and tears. God doesn't cry. He doesn't have tears. But Jesus did because he was a man. And he had faith. He had faith in him who was able to save him from death. And verse 8 says that he learned obedience. Not that he had to unlearn disobedience because he never disobeyed. But he grew in his obedience with every chance, every opportunity, every situation and circumstance. There was a command given and a concrete opportunity to learn in and grow in that obedience. And it happened through suffering. Again, God does not suffer, but Jesus did because he was 
truly a human. Verse 9 even says that he was made perfect. And in the context of this passage about the high priest, the meaning here carries the sense of being made consecrated. He was anointed, set apart. He was made fit and ready, qualified to serve as the high priest. And how did this come about? How did this perfection, this consecration come about? But through his suffering, we read in verse 8. Again, this is the second part of the, the comparison of Jesus with every other high priest. He was a human, and he suffered, and he even died. Verses 7 and 8, when he's praying with loud cries and tears, this is an agony in the Garden of Gethsemane because he's about to suffer the greatest suffering that he had ever undergone, and that was his death. He prayed to God, his Father, that God would deliver him, spare him from death, but he did not. He underwent death, and a terrible, horrible death it was. So you may say, okay, I see how this shows that Jesus is like every other high priest. He's human. He suffered. He was consecrated, and yet he died. But how does this comparison build confidence? How does this comparison help strengthen our confidence in Christ as a superior high priest? It seems like he's actually quite inferior because Jesus, after all, was rejected by the religious leaders. No other high priest was like this. He was rejected by the religious leaders who should have affirmed him and approved of him if he indeed was the Messiah. They were the religious experts. They knew the law. They were waiting for the Messiah, but they rejected him. And it wasn't only that he was rejected by the religious leaders, he suffered by the Roman leaders. Jesus suffered. He didn't conquer and bring suffering. He suffered at the hands of the enemies of God's people, the oppressors, these Roman idolaters. And more than that, Jesus was even cursed by God himself. As he was on the cross, as it is written, everyone, cursed is everyone who was hanged on a tree. So Jesus was rejected. He suffered. He was cursed. He died. And he was buried. Are we to assume that in spite of all of this, God appointed him as the superior high priest? No. Not in spite of it. Because of it. Jesus had been appointed, has been appointed by God as king over God's kingdom, as the great high priest for God's people because, because of his obedient suffering and death. It is by his living and by his suffering and by his dying as a human that he was made perfect, that he was consecrated so as to be designated as the great high priest. You see, every high priest has to be consecrated. There is no way... That a, that a human man can, can act on behalf of men in relation to God, go before God and offer such amazing sacrifices, privileged to, before God himself, coming near the river without himself first being consecrated. As we read in verse 3, uh, 2 and 3 here, that he, the ordinary, everyday high priest of old, they can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. That is, that he was encompassed and surrounded by his own sinfulness. Because of this, therefore, verse 3 says, he was obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. He couldn't come without being consecrated. And in Leviticus chapter 8, we see Aaron, this first great high priest who was consecrated by wearing special clothes and having these rituals and cleansing, but also having animals sacrificed in his place, and then having the blood of these animals sprinkled on him and his sons. Well, Jesus, Jesus was not like that. 
He did not have the blood of animals sprinkled on him. No, Jesus was stained with his own blood. Jesus consecrated, he was consecrated by his own suffering, his own death, his own blood. It is this shedding of the pure and perfect blood of the sinless one. That's what made him qualified. That's what consecrated him before God to become a perfected high priest. This just leads us into the second way we are to be strengthened with confidence in Christ as our superior high priest. Not only by comparison how he's like them, but by contrast how he is superior to every other high priest. You see, Jesus is like many others, but there are none like him. None. Because first, he is sinless. And in his sinlessness, he is unique. Again, in verses 2 and 3, they were beset with weakness, the weakness of their own sinfulness. And so they had, they had to, they were obligated to offer sacrifice for their own sins, but Jesus had no sins of his own. We read from last week in Hebrews 4, 15, that he, Jesus, was tempted in every respect as we are, and yet without sin. Without sin, none at all. I was reading this past week in Ezekiel chapter 14, how the people of God had been sinning for so much, for so long, that his patience had ran out. And he said, no more. Your rebellion and sins have been filled up, and my wrath is ready to pour out on you. And there's no one and nothing that can stop it. Even if, he says, even if Noah and Daniel and Job were there, I might spare them, but no one else. Noah, Daniel, and Job, three of the most righteous men to ever walk this earth, with their great devotion to God, their allegiance to Him, their faithfulness and faith in Him, he says, even their righteousness could not cover the wickedness of my people. Not so the sinless righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is a superior, superior to every high priest, superior to Noah and Daniel and Job and Moses and David and every other person who has ever lived. His sinless righteousness is not enough to cover every person, the most vile sins of the most wicked, and including everyone who will turn to him. This sinlessness of, of the Messiah, of Jesus, connects us to the second contrast, not only his sinlessness, but his divinity. Because you see, the only one who is sinless is God. It is not as though Jesus became God because he was sinless. Rather, he was conceived and born supernaturally and sinlessly because he is divine. He is God. And the divinity of Christ is, make, makes him unique and it makes him superior in contrast to every other high priest who were merely human. Jesus was human but also divine. We read again in verse 1 of chapter 5. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God and to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. As they would offer these gifts and sacrifices to God, then in turn, God would confer forgiveness and blessing to the people on behalf of the sinners. And he would do so through the high priest. And so there's a real sense in which the high priest acted on behalf of men, so he had to be men, a man. But he also acted on behalf of God. And this painted a picture of what would be that this high priest had to not only be man to act on behalf of men, but also had to be God to act on behalf of God to men. And indeed he is. We read in verses 5 and 6. Hebrews 5, 5. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, that is by God the Father, who said to him, You are my son. 
Today I have begotten you. As he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This here is the writer of Hebrews explaining the eternally divine sonship of Jesus. He is son, the Son of God. He has eternal divine sonship. Why am I saying eternally divine sonship? First, because he mentions Melchizedek. Melchizedek is a very interesting figure. We'll learn more about him in chapter 7. But just know this for now, that Melchizedek was a priest and a king, which was a unique combination. And Melchizedek had an ancestry that was a mystery. There was no record of his birth or his death. So we read in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, that in this way, he is like, it is like he is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. And so because of this, this is like an analogy pointing to Jesus as the eternally divine Son of God. But you say, if we we'll look at verse 5, it says, Today, you are my son, today I have begotten you. So how is that an eternal thing when it says that today he has become a son? Now, this word, granted, can be confusing, but we need to read it in context. The context here is that this is a quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 7. And this is only half the verse. The first half of chapter 2, verse 7 says, I will tell of the decree. And it's God speaking. Question, when did God make his decrees? When did God ordain all that would come to pass? In eternity. He always has had this idea, this plan. This was what he has always had in mind. Today, here then, as one commentator says, is a word that does not speak of a point in time at all. It is the eternal now of our timeless God. Or as one great theologian said, that the author of Hebrews gives us this word today so that we may understand that all things are present with God. As therefore with God, there is no yesterday, there's no past, and there is no tomorrow, there's no future with God, but always and only today. God is the timeless one, the eternal one. So this has always been in his mind that Jesus would be his son because Jesus is the eternally divine son of God. And he became the Messiah. He became king. He became the high priest because he is the son. Now, why am I going out of my way to make the point about Jesus, his eternally divine sonship, without beginning or without end, for two reasons. Number one, because, because he is eternal, it means he had no beginning. And this proves his divinity. This proves his divinity because who else has always existed but God? Only divine beings are forever existing as eternal. And this is a, a contrast showing his natural superiority to every other high priest. Because they all had a birth. They all had an origin. They all had a beginning. They have not always been, but the Son has. He has always been the Son of God. This shows his natural superiority over every other high priest. And the writer of Hebrews here is declaring that Jesus is the only begotten Son of God from all eternity. And listen, and that is why Jesus was appointed. You see, he didn't become the high, high uh, he, he didn't become the Son of God because he was the high priest. He became the high priest because he has eternally been the Son of God. This position was given to no one else. No one else was worthy of it. 
The Father would give it to no one else but the Son. No one else could handle it. Only Jesus, being water himself, could take us down into the raging river and lead us to no harm but only blessing. Only Jesus, the Son, the eternal Son of God. And this is why we ought to be all the more confident in Jesus and his superiority, embracing him alone, worshiping him alone, hoping in him alone as the only one who can take us to God. The second reason why I want to camp on this idea of Jesus being the eternally divine Son of God is because being eternal proves that Jesus is trustworthy because he has no end. We don't just lean on him for a little bit and, and hoping that he will, he will hold st steady and true for a little while, not knowing when or if he will give out. When will he pass away like every other high priest who died and had to be replaced? Jesus did not. He didn't have to be replaced. He can't be replaced. Because he is a priest forever, we read in verse 6. You are a priest forever after the order of Mel Melchizedek, who had no beginning and who has, will have never have an end. This shows the practical superiority of Jesus. We can lean on him and embrace him and trust him in every situation. No matter what, no matter how hard it gets. In the worst of times, even in the face of death. Because Jesus beat death. We read in verse 7 of Hebrews 5 that when Jesus in his humanity offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, he was heard because of his reverence. But we already established that Jesus did indeed die. So how did, was he heard because of his faith-filled submission and reverence to God? God the Father did not spare Jesus from death, but he saved him out of it by raising him from the dead having mastery over death, never to die again. And therefore, he can become, as verse 9 says, the source of eternal salvation, a salvation that has no end. Jesus is the cause of our everlasting salvation. All of the benefits, all of the divine blessings, the abundant life, the all-satisfying and unending connection to God, the one we are most desperate in need of, and the one that our hearts most long for. Jesus is the source of that connection. He is the cause of us drawing near to God and not being harmed, but having the blessing of life. Christ is superior to every other high priest and to every other means and every other way of trying to draw near to God. He is superior so much so that he renders all the other ones obsolete. He is the full and final fulfillment of all who would come before him. And anyone or anything that promises you that they can give you connection to God outside of Jesus, they are frauds. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father but through Him. There, there are none. There are none like Him. He is singularly unique as the superior high priest who alone was sinless, perfectly obedient, consecrated by his own sacrificial blood, being the Melchizedekian eternal son of God. And this is why he was appointed as the superior, the great high priest. He himself is and forever will be the source, not the shadow, not the, merely the servant of, but the him, the self, the very source of, the constant and unending and ever-present cause of our eternal salvation. That's Jesus. It has been my prayer that the Lord would enable me to paint a picture this morning. 
to paint such a clear and accurate picture of Christ that you will be compelled to embrace Jesus alone with steadfast faith because he is the superior high priest, the only one in whom we can draw near to God. It has been my prayer that you would be so compelled by this picture of Christ that you would worship him alone with humble allegiance because he is the eternally divine Son of God, the only one worthy of obedience and devotion and worship. And that you would be compelled to hope in him alone with joyful peace, no matter what comes. No matter your circumstances, no matter your pain, no matter your loss, no matter the heartache or the struggle or the trouble, because he himself is the water. The water that we most desperately need and our souls most earnestly long for. Did you know that? Every longing you have, every time you ache for something, something new, something powerful, something glorious, something refreshing, something satisfying, you're sat, you're, you are seeking after and longing for Him. He's it. Jesus is the eternal source, the eternal Son who becomes the source of our eternal salvation. But it says in verse 9, He is the source of eternal salvation to all who obey Him. To all who obey Him. That is, our practical obedience to Jesus as Lord proves our faith in Jesus as the superior Savior. When we live in our faith-filled obedience to Jesus and submission to Him, it proves that we really are embracing Him as the only one and whom we can draw near to God. And sometimes the New Testament speaks of the obedience of faith or obedience to the truth. Well, how do you obey the truth but by believing it? The obedience of faith, is that is the obedience that comes from faith, yes, but also has the foundation of faith. This means that today you are not simply invited to believe and to continue believing. I plead with you, but that's not all there is. Jesus himself demands that you believe in him. It is obedience to trust him. The first and foundational obedience to Jesus is to trust him as the only, the superior high priest, the only one in whom you can draw near to God. This morning, if you are not yet trusting in Jesus, not embracing him, maybe trying to cling on to some other branch nearby, something else to make, bring you safe passage into the all-satisfying, life-giving waters of God. Then this communion meal that we're about to partake of is not for you, not yet. It's only for those who are embracing him fully. So instead of coming up when others do, I invite you and Jesus commands you to stay where you are, to not come up and partake. But instead to bow your heart before him and to pray. And afterwards, maybe come to me or one of the other pastors or put it on a connection card. You want somebody to talk with you or email us. Say, we want to know more what it looks like, what it means to embrace Jesus as the superior high priest. And if you are trusting in Jesus, you have and you are embracing him as your Savior and Lord. And you have had this faith affirmed by your obedience in baptism in a church. And in just a moment, you can exit to your left and come up to one of these tables and grab the communion elements with gluten-free being to your far left. Go back to your seat to the right and humbly and in repentance and with faith 
partake of these communion elements, this bread and this juice that represents the body and the blood of Jesus, his suffering by which he was consecrated and made perfect, qualified to be your high priest, your source of eternal salvation. And take it with faith, embracing him. Take it with joy, worshiping him and in hope that he is all that you long for and all that you need. For those who should come, whenever you're ready, please come.